As we look at current events in the world around us and events in our own lives, we can see them through two very different lenses. We can see them from a human perspective or from God's perspective. The book of Revelation is given to the church to give us a heavenly perspective on world events. It takes us behind the scenes to help us see who really is in control of these events in our lives and in the world and what the master plan is for it all. These are, are these haphazard things that just happen at, at the whim of mankind? Is that what's happening or is there really a master plan and that is being followed? And so the book of Revelation helps us to see this master plan so that we can rest in him and live in the hope and joy of what is to come. What you see and hear on the news is from a human perspective. We are told that these events are the works of evil men and the acts of a blind nature, mother nature. And life is all about the survival of the fittest. And the one who has the greater power and resources will win at the end. That's what we're told when you listen to the news. Well, the book of Revelation shows us that that can't be further from the truth, as we will see today. Now, to set the chapter in context... Uh, in the overall context of the book. In chapter 1, Jesus appeared to John on the island of Patmos in a vision. And there in uh, verse 119, he tells him that he is to write the things that he had seen, the things that are, and the things that will shortly come to pass. Things that will shortly come to pass in the future. Having finished his letters to the seven churches concerning the things that are, the Lord is now about to show John the things that will take place in the future. Things that will affect both the world and the church. But before the Lord shows him these things, he wants him and us to get a heavenly perspective on these events. He wants them to get a heavenly perspective. So in chapter 4, which is what we'll be looking at today, John is called up to heaven where he gets to see the Lord enthroned on high. In a similar way that Ezekiel and Isaiah got to see the glory of God prior to being commissioned to deliver a message of judgment to the rebellious nation of Israel. And in chapter 5, we get to see the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ as the conquering, redeeming King who alone is worthy to execute the plan of God for humanity and the world. So these two chapters go together. They're one unit. One shows us the glory of God exalted on his throne in chapter 4. And the other shows us the glory and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ as the only one who is worthy to open the scroll and to open up those seals and unravel the scroll and carry out the purposes and decrees of God for all of mankind. So these two chapters are a tremendous encouragement for believers as we await his return. They clearly show, show us, brethren, that our destiny, that our destiny is not in the hands of some politicians or judges in Washington, nor are we at the mercy of some evil regime with nuclear weapons that is able to destroy us. No, what we see from these two chapters is that our destiny is in the hands of a sovereign God who sits enthroned above every power and authority and his son and our savior Jesus Christ who is carrying out the will of God for the world and his church. Amen. And one day 
The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So these are the things that we are meant to see in these two chapters. Before all the events unfold, before you hit all the seals and the trumpets and the bowls of wrath and all those events, famines and earthquakes and so forth and and plagues and so forth, before you get to that, He wants us to get a view, to get a kind of like a, a step back and see what really is happening. Who really is in control of all this? And so we cannot be taken by surprise when these things happen. We're not to fear the events because they're in the hands of a sovereign God who loves us and He's given us His Holy Son. So with that background, brethren, now let's look at chapter 4. I'm going to read verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you. What must take place after this? Let's ask the Lord's help. Lord, our God, we thank you that as we have sung your praises, and now as we sit to hear your word, and give us a vision of your glory. Help us to see you high and lifted up above all things. Give us that heavenly perspective on life, the things around us and the things that are happening in our own lives. Oh, Lord, that we might give you the glory and praise that you are worthy of. Bless your word to your people. Encourage our hearts by your truth, Lord, today. Indeed, we need your Spirit's work among us, Lord. We pray this in the name of our blessed Savior. Amen. And he says, after this, I looked. John transitions us from one vision to another He says these words with a slight variation after a few times in the book of Revelation when he's about to introduce a new vision where he says, he says, I saw or I looked or carried away in the spirit and this happened and that happened. So this is a transition that he gives us from one vision to the next. And behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, speaking symbolically here, a door in heaven. There are no doors in heaven, of course. Uh, And who is at this door? It's the one who's calling to him at the door is none other than Jesus Christ. So the only way that we can get to heaven is through that door. I am the door, Jesus says. No one can come to the Father except through me. He is the door of heaven. And John lets us know that this was the same voice that spoke to him uh, back in 111, summoning him to write the things that he had seen, to write them in the book, and to deliver them to the seven churches in Asia Minor. The voice says, and I will show you what must take place after this. Now notice the word must, must take place. This is meaning these are not speculations or matter of chance, but are events which will certainly happen because they are God's divine decrees. They must happen. Telling you what God has decreed from all eternity will and must take place. And Jesus is about to show them to his servant John. In verse 2, John tells us, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. He says, At once I was in the Spirit. John was in the Spirit uh, when uh, the Lord appeared to him in 1.10, in chapter 1, verse 10. And evidently he had returned to his normal state of mind, and now he's in the Spirit again. He tells us that his, uh, his ascent to heaven was not bodily, but spiritual. So at this point, he's not conscious of what's happening around him. He's still on the island. 
But in his mind, in his spirit, in his heart, he is translated into the heavenly realm. So he's not aware of what's happening around him on earth at this point. Similar to, if you remember, when Stephen was uh, being about to be stoned by the mob, and he looks up and he says, I see the heavens open, and Christ standing there on the right hand of, of God. So there's this vision that comes on his mind, and it's as if though he's not even aware of those who are about to, to, to stone him, and he's looking and he sees a heavenly vision opened up in front of him, similar to this. So what did John see in heaven? Well, he tells us, And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. The first thing that John sees in heaven is not the attendance of heaven. No, he sees one thing. That's the first thing. And that's what we need to see, brothers and sisters. The first thing he sees is a throne. Is a throne. And one seated on it. He doesn't want us to miss this point, this main point of the vision. It is all about the one seated on the throne. John makes mention of the throne 47 times in the book of Revelation. You, you may ask, why is that? Well, you have to remember who he's writing to. And the time he's writing to, those brothers and sisters that he's writing to were very familiar with a throne. And that throne was of Caesar. And that throne was terrifying. What does John want them to see? There's a throne above Caesar's throne. And that throne is in heaven. It is above every throne. And I want you to fix your eyes upon this throne. You're afraid of Caesar's throne. But let me show you there's another throne that you ought to see. And see His glory. See His greatness. Fix your eyes on Him. At that point, Caesar's throne would be insignificant. And so this is what we need to see as well, brothers and sisters. We live in similar times, do we not? Men who sit in high places, assuming great power and names and honor and greatness to themselves, thinking that they control all things. Well, they do not. There's a throne above every throne that is in heaven. And that is what we need to fix our eyes upon today. He then proceeds in verse 3 to give us a description of the majesty and glory of God. The majesty and glory of God. Look with me verse 3. And he who sat there... had the appearance of jasper and cornelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald john sees god seated on a throne incapable of being seen or described in fullness as we read in first timothy 6 16 who alone has immortality, who dwells in an unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see To him be honor, eternal dominion. Uh, Amen. So he describes the light emanating from the throne. I mean, after all, brothers and sisters, how can you describe what God is like? We can talk about his attributes. We can talk about his works. But God is beyond our description. As infinite, as finite, sinful Creatures, we cannot comprehend God's infinitude. As finite, sinful creatures, brothers and sisters, as John here looks and he sees God, he can only say, compare him to certain things. He says, he had the appearance of jasper. He had the appearance of emerald. He's trying to come up with things that his mind can, can quite, you know, relate to. What are the, the things that he can relate to? Well, it's kind of like this, okay? It's kind of like this. I can't quite tell you, but it's kind of like this. And the best he can come up with are precious jewels. Precious jewels. Uh, God said in Isaiah 40, 25, To whom will you compare me that I should be like him? says the Holy One. He is totally beyond us, 
in our human experience. Now, John describes the light in terms of these precious gems, jasper, cornelian, and emerald. Some have tried to give significance to each of these gems. Uh, They associate jasper, which is transparent like diamond, that reflects different light and, and reflects different lights, as the infinite perfection of God, especially his purity and holiness. Cornelian, which is blood red in color, they associate with God's justice and wrath. Uh, And emerald, being green, they associate with mercy as shown in the rainbow. They see in these colors the summary of the gospel. God's holiness, justice, and mercy. But rather than trying to give a meaning to each of these, uh, I believe that they are meant to be taken as a whole. To describe the magnificent beauty and glory of God who dwells in unapproachable light. There is nothing on earth that would would come close to describing his glory. John is just trying to describe it uh, with, with these most precious things on earth he could think of. And the best he can come up with are these rare and costly jewels. And then he says, around his throne is the rainbow, a sign of the covenant that he made with Noah not to destroy the earth with a flood. This shows us that he is the God of mercy and faithfulness. It speaks of his mercy towards mankind in the midst of judgment. Brethren, when we look at the world today and we see the ungodliness, we see the the evil that that is exalting itself against God. And you say, how low can man get? How bad can things get? And yet, God is amazingly patient. It says that he would that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. But be assured, brothers and sisters, there is a day, there is an appointment, there is a day on the calendar and the timeline of history where God has appointed that day on which Christ will return. And He will judge all of mankind in righteousness. We can be assured of that. His mercy is not limitless. There is a limit to that mercy. There is a day appointed in which God will judge the world in righteousness. And so I urge you, in that day, the scripture tells us, will come as a thief in the night. It's not something that you, you know. No one knows the day or the hour. But he calls all men to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Today is a day of salvation. So we cannot bank on, well, things are going to continue the way they are for another year and another 10 years and another 100 years. We don't have guarantee. Only God knows what that day he has appointed in the timeline of history. Now, we'll continue in a description of the throne in verse 5 and come back to verse 4 to speak about the royal attendance of that throne. So look with me at verse 5. Verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. The lightning and thunder that proceeds from the throne are symbolic of God's power and majesty. Thunder and lightning in the book of Revelation are always associated with temple scenes and mark a major event that is about to happen. In 8.5, they follow the breaking of the seventh seal. In uh, 11.19, it is after blowing of the seventh trumpet. In 16.18, it is after the angel pours out the seventh bowl of wrath. So seven is the number of completion or perfection. So seven seals, we hear the thunder, seven trumpets, we hear the thunder, and seven bowls, we see and hear the thunder again. This is meant to remind us of Mount Sinai, 
When God came down on the mountain and there was fire, smoke, and thunder and lightning to show that the God who redeemed them from slavery is also transcendent and unapproachable God. Brethren, when we worship God, we must keep those two things in a balance. We are invited to come into God's presence through Jesus Christ, boldly and freely, but we come with reverence and awe, knowing that our God is a consuming fire, as we read in Hebrews 12. The God who makes His face shine upon us in Christ is the just and holy God who poured his, out His wrath on His Son there at Calvary. He is God of mercy and goodness, and at the same time, holiness and justice. There's a beauty about God that attracts us. There's a beauty about God that attracts us, and that beauty we saw in these precious stones. But then there is a holiness about God that tells us, you must come the right way. You must come through Jesus Christ. There is only one way that we can approach that throne or we will be consumed. And that way is through the holiness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing with the description in verse 5, And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. What this is meant to convey is a temple scene with the golden lampstand and the sea of Solomon's temple where it says and before the throne there was as a as it were a sea of glass like crystal the seven burning torches of fire also referred to as the eyes of God and the seven spirits that were before the throne we read about well uh, for those in Wayne back in chapter 1 verse 4 that speaks about the seven spirits of God is in reference to the Holy Spirit and the golden lampstands in the temple Uh, The fire is a reference to purity and judgment, as in Christ will be coming in His second coming with fire to consume, to judge all the ungodly. Fire is also used for sanctification, purification. Uh, So it is a symbol of purity and judgment. And then we read that before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. The sea of glass adds to the scene of grandeur and splendor, awesome splendor. Uh, That is why he says, as it were. In other words, what looked like a sea of glass. What looked like a sea of glass. This would reflect the flashing uh, and many colored lights from the throne to create a heightened sense of the transcendence and majesty of God. Now, what is this sea? Well, do you remember in the, the sea uh, in the temple the, with, the, with the labor were where it was like a big tub basically with water and the priests would come and sanctify and purify themselves before going about to carry about their duties as, as priests. Well, this sea is made of glass because the priests have already been purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. And they can walk on this sea up to the throne of God. Uh, Let's now look at the attendants, uh, the royal attendants. And and, uh, since the 24 elders were mentioned first in verse 4, we'll look at them first. Verse 4, look with me at verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, who are these 24 elders? A couple of views, if you read commentaries. There's One is that uh, uh, Robert Mouse says that they are exalted angelic order who serve and adore God as a heavenly counterpart to the 24 priests in the Levitical order mentioned in 1 1 Chronicles 24.4, who were chief men from the house of Aaron chosen to serve as officers of the sacred things of the house of God. And uh, he supports this by uh, 5.8, where it says they're offering incense, which are the prayers of the saints before the Lord. But I take take Hendrickson's position 
who says that they are representative of believers from the Old and New Testament, 12 tribes, 12 apostles. Uh, these are representative uh, just like the 12 gates in the city uh, and 12 pillars in the New Jerusalem representing the apostles and the 12 tribes. And there are a few reasons for this. I can give you that if you wish. You can see me afterwards or email me and I can give you a few reasons why I believe this is a more accurate position. And as for their activity of these 24 elders, everywhere we see them in the book, we see them as in verse 9 and 11, they are falling on their faces and praising and worshiping God. We see this in 5, 9 and 10, 11, 17 and 19, 4. So they're constantly worshiping God, giving Him praise for who He is. Now, brethren, believers, look at these elders and consider your future. You may not look like much now. No beautiful white garments, no crown on your head. You are fighting sin here and perhaps living in need and poverty and physical weakness and chronic pain. But look at the way God sees you through these representatives. And the way you will look one day, regardless of your condition now, you have a glorious inheritance awaiting you. You will shine like the sun. You will be in the very presence of God, beholding His face and worshiping Him. Look and admire. Look and rejoice in your King. Look with anticipation. The second group of royal attendants are described for us in verses 6 to 8. Look with me at verses 6 to 8. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the, uh, with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes and around and within. What do these things mean? Uh, these creatures in the midst of the and around the throne, closer to God than any other creatures, uh, serving as guardians of the throne. They are full of eyes as, as that they can see everywhere. They can see everywhere. You know, they talk about parents having eyes behind their back and see what their kids are doing. Well, the, these creatures, it says, they, have, they are full of eyes all the way around. Nothing escapes their observation. They are living creatures full of life and vibrancy to worship and serve God. The appearance of these living creatures is similar to what is described in Ezekiel chapter 1. And Ezekiel tells us in, in 1019 that he refers to them as cherubim. Cherubim. Uh, these were the highest order of angels and their special task was to guard the holy things of God. Do you remember where we are first introduced to the cherubim? Recall back in the garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden and what was there guarding and protecting the garden? It was a cherubim. Do you also recall where we, uh, second place where we're introduced to these cherubims and that is on the mercy seat. Do you recall? There's two cherubims who were over, uh, kind of like uh, bending over the mercy seat, and they are there at the, in the very presence of the Holy of Holies. So here again, we see them. Uh, as for their appearance, they had the appearance of a lion, ox, man, and eagle. Some commentators tell us that this is meant to convey that in heaven, both man and beast will be praising God. And here we have a sample representative of the animate creation. Lion, chosen for strength. Ox, for service. Man, for intelligence. Eagle, for swiftness. I, Isaiah saw these also these creatures. He calls them the fiery ones. Uh, and he calls them the seraphims, but they are the same order 
most likely same order of angelic beings. Again, mind you, brethren, bear in mind that this is figurative. It is not meant to be taken literal. There are no oxen. There are no eagles. There are no uh, lions in the, on, in the throne of, before the throne of God. These are representative, figurative language that is being used here. So keep those things in mind as you read through Revelation. If you come up with bizarre interpretations, then you're wrong. Okay? Just remember that. Let's now look at their activity in verse 8c. And day and night, they never cease to say, there's a song we just sung, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is to come. There, in one sense, brothers and sisters, these are like worship leaders, just like our brethren were leading us in worship. They are in the presence of God, and they are calling our attention to certain things that we are to adore and worship God for. And they say, God is holy, holy, holy. He's Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So he, they're drawing attention, and we'll see what the response of the elders is to this pronouncement. We'll see that in verses uh, 9 through 11. So they are ascribing to God praise for His holiness, for His might, and for His eternality. Holiness, might, and eternality. These are three attributes of God that sets Him apart from every created thing and thus making him deserving of our praise and worship. He's absolutely holy, that is set apart, distinct, unlike any other, without sin, pure. He's almighty, he's all-powerful, and he's eternal. He has no beginning and no end. Look at what an awesome God we serve, brethren. If he was all-powerful but not holy... Then he can use his power to do evil like Satan. If he was holy and not all-powerful, then he would be overcome by Satan and by evil. And, if, and the fact that he's eternal means that he doesn't change. His attributes are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this God, in all of his holiness, in all of his power... In all of his eternality is for us in Christ Jesus. And that ought to fill our hearts with joy and peace. Jesus said to his disciples, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He's almighty. Notice how often they praise God. Did you catch that? How often they praise God? Day and night. Never cease, it says. Never cease to praise God. Day and night. Man here on earth may not give glory to God that he deserves, but his creatures in heaven continuously give him glory and praise. And every time the four living creatures praise God, look at what, what the 24 elders do, verses 9 to 11. Look with me there. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you. Our, God, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. The 24 elders join the chorus. They join the chorus of praise. You see what a beautiful thing this is really kind of like what our brethren do here. They're not performing for us. No, no, no. They're helping us in order to praise the Lord. We're the 24 elders here, right? So if their job is to help us in our worship 
of God. They don't take over and, and start performing. That's not the point uh, that they're up here for. So, and what do the 24 elders, the first thing that they do is says they get off their thrones and take their crowns off their heads and they cast them down at the feet of him who sits on the throne and prostrate themselves before him. This is the proper response, brothers and sisters, to God's majesty and glory and eternal being. They cast their crowns before him as an acknowledgement that their authority is delegated. Is delegated. The honor given to them is freely returned to the one alone who is worthy of honor. They recognize that their accomplishment was only made possible through God's faithfulness. They have nothing of which to boast except their God. Salvation from first to last is of the Lord. We contribute only one thing, and that's our sin. Our effort is only because of His work in us. We could do nothing of ourselves. All our accomplishments are by His grace and for His glory. Romans eleven thirty six. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Even the crown they're wearing comes from the Lord. This is one of the five times that we see these elders worshiping. Here, they're worshiping Him as a Creator. In chapter 5, verse 8 and 7, 12, as Redeemer. And eleven sixteen and nineteen four as Judge. So, Creator, Redeemer, and Judge. And here's their song of worship. Look with me, verse 11. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, our, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God is worthy, worthy to receive the glory, the honor, and the power. The, uh, and and the, the, there's the definite article there the glory, the honor, the power. He alone is worthy. He alone is worthy. And the word worship comes from the English word worth, worth-ship. It means to give God the honor and praise that He is worthy of. He is worthy to receive praise and adoration because He has created all things and by His will exist. Neither man or angels can create, nor can random matter create itself like evolution tells us. But by virtue of that fact that He deserves our praise and worship. And we exist, it says we exist by His will. Brethren, what do we need to live? We need water, we need air, we need food. Right? Do you get up in the morning and tell the sun to shine so that it could... uh, create the photosynthesis and all the things that is needed and the water cycle and make that rise up in clouds and move over a certain area and come down. And do, you, do you do that? I don't. I get up and the sun is there. I turn the tab on, there's water. I, I reach to the cupboard and the refrigerator and there's food. Where would that come from? Well, it's God. He regulates you don't get up and regulate the oxygen and nitrogen in the air because if, if, there is, if that balances off, we couldn't breathe. So everything we, lead, we need comes from Him. Everything we need to live comes from Him, from His hand. Do you give Him praise for that? Do you worship Him for that? Well, these 24 elders are doing that. And so we're called to worship God because of Him we live, move, and have our being. Brethren, without Him, we could do nothing. We couldn't even be here. We couldn't stand. We couldn't live. We couldn't breathe. Every breath you take ought to be an opportunity for praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord. You give me another breath, I can breathe fresh air. Hallelujah. It's God's goodness. We are to give Him glory and worship for what He has done. Just His mercies alone. Just look outside, you see the beautiful... I was coming here and 
you know, you see the heartache, uh, the homeless man over there, and then I just turn the corner, there's beautiful uh, uh, daffodils, just there on the side, uh, just a little patch of green, beautiful, and it's just like, wow, God, you're amazing. Your creation is just so beautiful, you're incredible. So, brethren, this will be our activity one day, worshiping our God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ continually. As it says in Revelation 7, 15, it says, The multitude that no one could number from every tribe and tongue. And what are they doing? It says, And they serve Him day and night in the temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. That will be our presence. We will be those 24 elders day and night worshiping our awesome Creator. Let's now look at a couple of points of application. This passage shows us that what true worship looks like. Shows us what true worship looks like. In the first place, we see that God alone is to be worshipped. Not the four living creatures, not the 24 elders. God alone is to be worshipped. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He alone is holy, almighty, and eternal. No one else. If you worship anyone else, whether that's the Virgin Mary or any other saint, what you are doing is robbing God of honor and glory that is alone. He alone is worthy of. They are not almighty. They are not uh, holy because they need a savior. And they are not eternal who existed before eternity. God says in Isaiah 20, 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So God alone is, to, is worthy of receiving our worship and praise. Secondly, our worship is to be offered from a heart that is filled with adoration for the God, who, uh, for the one who is, uh, who is and uh, let me read that again that is filled with adoration for who God is and what He has done for us as we see the elders doing. This means that we need to reflect on who God is, His majesty, His glory, and His goodness to us as described in, uh, to us in His Word until our hearts are filled with praise. So when do they start praising the Lord? When the four creatures say who God is, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who is and who, who was and who is to come. And so that is what framed the, the worship of the 24 elders. As they focused on those things, those attributes of God, their hearts were filled with worship and they bowed down, they rose from their throne, bowed down, cast their crowns before Him and worshiped Him for those things. That means, brothers and sisters, we need to, when we come to worship, we need to have those things filtered in our mind, not just have an ascent, but hearts that are given over because of who God is. We've seen His beauty, we've seen His glory, and that compels us, that drives us to worship Him. Our worship is not to be mindless. It is to, we are to feed upon who God is, His attributes, His greatness. As Pastor Damien led us in the opening worship, God, you are so great. We see you like the stars of the heavens. He's, he's turning our eyes to this great and awesome God so that we could enter in with praise and worship intelligibly, intelligently. And so when we come, we read, we read the scriptures. This, we ought to be looking. What is it about God I see here that compels me, that drives me, that ought to drive me to worship? And our songs, brethren, our songs are to reflect these things. They're to be saturated with scripture, not just some happy, clappy songs. Those are not worthy of our great God. This is our God right here. If you do a study, I, I encourage you, do a study of all the songs in Revelation. What you will see is there is thoughtful, they're filled with thoughtful praise to God. 
of his divine attributes, his marvelous works of creation, his marvelous works of redemption, and his marvelous works of judgment. Do a study of that. And you see that they are filled with thoughtful praise describing the attributes of God. Thirdly, our worship is to be God-exalting and man-abasing. God-exalting and man-abasing. Where is God in this scene? On His throne. Where is man in this scene? Prostrate before Him. And that's where we need to be. That's where we need to keep that, that vision before us. Today we have reversed this order. We have exalted man to a place of God and God has become man's servant like a genie bottle to give him what he wants. God is all about meeting your needs. He, he, he has no existence other than just to satisfy your whims and whatever you need. Oh, what do you want? I'm your, I'm your genie. Tell me what you want. and I'm here for you. That's, that, that is blasphemy. God is on His throne. We exist for Him, to worship Him. He doesn't exist for us. We are here for His glory, to give Him praise and honor. So, so we're called to a mind shift, brethren. We must give God His rightful praise and dethrone man and put God back on His throne. When we think of God, we must think of Him in His divine majesty as described for us here in this text. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says, Today, vast stress is laid on the thoughts that God is personal. But this truth is so stated as to leave the impression that God is a person of the same sort as we are. Weak, inadequate, ineffective, and little pathetic. Little pathetic. Now, brethren, we should stress that our, our God can be known personally, but we should not lose sight of His majesty and greatness, which is the point that John wants us to see in this chapter. We relate to Him as Father, indeed, but remember, He's a heavenly Father. He's not an earthly Father filled with, with weakness and sin. No, He's a heavenly Father. He's an eternal Father. He's the Almighty Father. We need to keep that in mind. Therefore, we must worship Him with reverence and fear. This passage, secondly, teaches us, doesn't only teach us how to worship God, but how often God is worthy of our continual worship. We see no matter what is going on in our lives or the world, God is worthy of our worship because nothing of God changes. Nothing of God changes. You're still breathing His air. You're still enjoying His sunshine. You're still eating His food. You're still drinking His water. Nothing of God has changed because your circumstances have changed. He is glorious and majestic all the time. And He is being praised all the time in heaven. He is worthy of our worship on good days and not so good days. On Sunday and on every day of the week. He is worthy of our worship. And let's start to do that, brethren. If this is going to be what we will be doing in heaven, let's begin now. Let's begin now to worship God daily for who He is. And to the degree, brethren, that God has captured our hearts, His beauty, His glory, His majesty, it is to that degree that we will be praising Him now and desire to do so in heaven. Just like Psalm, Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I might behold, dwell in a temple of the Lord, behold the glory and beauty of God, and acquire in His holy temple. Now, one last application. To those of you who don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you've not come to a saving faith and put your trust in Christ. I have this question. Does your image of God match the image that we have, that the revelation here, the revelation of Himself has given us in this chapter? Does your image of God match what has been described for us here, how God has revealed Himself to us in the Word? 
Do you think of him as a fuddy-duddy kind of God who winks at sin and just kind of slaps you on the wrist and says, naughty boy, naughty girl, you shouldn't have done that, but I understand you meant, you didn't mean to, you had a good heart, just come on in into my presence. You think he's just going to overlook small sins and, and just punish the really, really bad people in the world, the Hitlers, the Mussolinis, and those peoples? Well, you see, whatever your image that you have of God, if it doesn't match this image of God as being God who is holy, 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 no sin can exist before him, that he's completely pure, holy others than we are, that in order for us to come into his presence, we must be as holy as he is. He's not going to overlook sin. He's not going to wink at sin and just say, oh, that's okay, because he didn't do that with Adam and Eve. Nor will he do it with us. And that he is almighty. He's a consuming fire. He's a wrathful, just God. He cannot wink at sin. He must judge sin or else he cannot be all holy. So whatever image we create in our minds of God, if it doesn't match this description we read in the scripture, then that God doesn't exist. That's just a God of our imagination. That's a figment. That's something we create in our minds of a God that doesn't exist. He is... uh, Holy and just, who will judge even the smallest sin. He's sovereign, eternal, almighty creator, who created all things to, and sustains him, them by his power and for his glory. You see, and that is why, that is why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Because he's holy, because he's just. Christ came into the world in order to do what? In order to take the punishment of sin on our behalf. To bear the wrath of God upon that cross for all who put their faith and trust in Him. That He might impart to us His glory, His righteousness, His holiness, so that we can appear before God as sinless beings. And He offers Himself to us, every one of us, And he says, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Receive him today and you too, you too can enjoy the presence of God forever. You too will have access into his very presence to rejoice and praise him forever and ever. If you have any questions, we'd love to sit with you. uh, And Pastor Damien, myself, or any of the brethren, we'd love to sit with you and talk with you about those things. How can you know your sins are forgiven? How can you be accepted before a holy God? We'd love to talk with you after the service. Let us... uh...